0: Hello and welcome to another installment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're looking at Black Vein Prophecy by Paul Mason and Steve Williams, with art, including cover art, by Terry Oakes. I am indebted to listener James, who got in touch to tell me that Black Vein Prophecy is somewhat broken. I've resisted the urge to delve into exactly how and why this is the case, but I'm sure it'll become obvious at some point, and I'll go into more detail at the end. Paul Mason and Steve Williams have already provided one book in the series, The Gently Odd Slaves of the Abyss, a book I remember enjoying quite a lot, but not, you know, enormously. Terry Oakes, the illustrator, is an old hand on the series by this point, having provided variably good quality art on Rings of Kether, Beneath Nightmare Castle, Slaves of the Abyss, and Dead of Night. He's a solid pick whose style seems to fit nicely with the series. I will say that the cover art, which uh, shows a mysterious cloaked figure with a hood, gesticulating wildly in front of a mystical orb which has two birds one white one black kind of arranged in a yin yang configuration is perhaps not one of the very finest in the fighting fantasy canon but it's still a perfectly pleasant image to look at so I'm not going to throw too much shade at it. We would normally roll up a character and talk about the rules at this point, but this is a book which dumps you straight into the action with no preamble, with your stats and whatnot being generated as you play. This is a neat idea and I'm a fan of anything that means I don't have to read five pages of made-up place names out loud as an opener. It also, I think, reflects an awareness on the part of the authors that 42 books in You probably aren't making many new converts to the series. It's one of those ideas you could do at any point, but it probably has the most power later on in a series when the expectations of character creation feel almost set in stone, and therefore the violation of those norms can generate a significant amount of tension. It's not clear whether I can even give my character a name, so I'll leave that until it becomes relevant. With almost indecent speed, let's play Black Vein Prophecy. Blackness. The sound of marching feet. The musty odour of decay. Somewhere in the void which envelops you, a voice cries out. The pounding feet fade away and sparks swim before your eyes. Nausea grips you. You double up, your head thumps against stone. The numbness retreats from your limbs, and, as your senses return, you feel the cold stone slabs which entomb you. You panic, flailing desperately. Your hands strike at the slab above you, and a flash sears your vision. As your sight returns, you see the lid of your sarcophagus hurtle upwards. It smashes against a high ceiling and disintegrates, raining stone shards and dust down upon you. Silence. Descends. You drag yourself out and collapse weakly. You are in a round, high domed chamber festooned with rich tapestries and glittering ornaments, each carefully stacked and ordered. A faint golden radiance suffuses the treasure, dimly illuminating the chamber. The sumptuous marble floor is shot through with black veins, but its perfect surface is floored by a series of fine cracks. So, are these the black veins of the title? If so, um, congratulations on getting a reference to the title in, in only the second paragraph. Along one of these cracks, a thin rivulet of crimson seeps across the dust towards you. You look up. A broken body lies among the rubble, a trickle of blood oozing from its head. You back away, scrabbling across the marble to the base of your tomb. Beyond it is another identical sarcophagus, but you are too bewildered to pay any attention to it. Tracing your hand over the carved surface of your own tomb, you struggle to make sense of the weird designs covering it, but their significance eludes you, leaving you with only the vaguest feelings of recognition. The whole chamber seems filled with echoes of your past, but the meaning is lost to you. All you are left with is a terror which grips your innards and gnaws at your mind. Something makes a noise. You turn towards the sound, grasping the lid of the sarcophagus for support. Just as you are struggling to focus, the crushed body twitches. Then a silvery snout pokes out from behind it, and a pair of startled eyes meet yours. Shaken into action, you pull yourself to your feet. So there is a picture of the chamber with the body and the sarcophagus, which I'm going to say I think is really good. There's a lovely sense of perspective, a really good forced perspective with the outstretched hand of the unfortunate person lying on the ground pushing towards us and the uh, sides of the sarcophagus um, really funneling our vision towards this this corpse and the strange beast um that lurks behind it yeah it's really good but we do have some choices so the silvery snouted creature we could attack or we could approach cautiously or we could retreat to the other sarcophagus well i'm very intrigued by the silvery creature but i'm not going to try and stab it in the face uh, immediately Partly because that seems a mean thing to do, and partly because I don't have a sword. So we will approach cautiously. The silver third creature eyes you suspiciously as you approach. Its long snout twitches at you, sniffing you out. You observe that a leather cord attached to its collar tethers it to the wrist of the dead man. Warily, you examine the corpse. The man is dressed simply, but his leather jerkin is fitted with pouches and pockets, all bulging with gems and small jewellery. Tea leaf, eh? I'm uh, going to assume that this chap was trying to rob this treasure chamber. A long, blunt pocket knife is gripped in one hand. A gem-encrusted tiara lies centimetres from the other. You realise that he must have been killed by a vicious blow from behind, his murderer having caught him by surprise you flinch involuntarily and scan the darkness for his killer. Do you want to leave the chamber now or would you rather have another look at your sarcophagus? Um, it feels as though escaping is the sensible option, but at the same time I do want to know what's going on. It feels as though I, I must get some information because without knowledge I won't be able to deal with uh, whatever challenges are going to be facing me. The morbid glyphs on your tomb exert a strange fascination. Without thinking, you begin to trace the rough contours of these symbols. With the numbness gone, you pick up the faintest tremor. There is meaning and energy in the glyphs, but despite their familiarity, you cannot unlock these forces. Reluctantly, you draw your hand away from the stone face and turn around. You meet the reverent gazes of a hundred robed figures. The chamber is filled with a silent retinue. At their head, a hawk-nosed man fixes you with a penetrating stare. He opens his mouth to speak. You stagger. As the chamber shakes, chips of rock rain down and you cower from them, shielding your face. There is a popping in your ears and a dull ache builds in your temples. When you look up, you are alone once more. The chamber shakes again and at your feet, a crack in the marble begins to widen. You dodge fist-sized chunks of stone as they crash to the ground. Pressure grips you. Breathing becomes hard, and your heart beats wildly. Do you want to jump back into the sarcophagus, or do you want to flee the chamber, I think? Now might just be the time to get out of dodge. The terrible pressure on your head threatens to engulf you as you force your way out of the chamber. Barely able to keep your eyes open, you pass through a small opening, and the pressure eases. But you stagger on. You crash into something hard and clutch your knee in pain. Your sight returns in time for you to see a smooth, white, human figure toppling over. It hits the ground and cracks like a hollow eggshell. A skull rolls out of it and away into the chamber. You look up. This is all very mysterious and interesting. I'm slightly surprised that we didn't get to uh, make friends with the silvery fox thing, or possibly a silvery anteater. It's not clear from the illustration. But uh, yeah, I do enjoy having my expectations subverted. Before you stand row upon row of smooth, white, motionless figures. Each holds a simple spear but wears no armour. The low ceiling of the enormous chamber adds to the feeling of oppression, and you step cautiously between the serried ranks. The sensation of pressure increases once more, and the white statues tremble faintly, producing a hollow ringing noise. You notice the familiar traceries of cracks peering in the marble floor, and a haze of dust wafting down from the ceiling. Do you want to hurry through the chamber to the far end, or stop to examine the white statues more closely. I wonder if I can nick a spear from one of these statues. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and see if I can nick a spear, because I feel as though some sort of weapon ought to be uh, an early priority. That is assuming, of course, that the um, book has lots of fights in, which I guess one of the ways you can mess with the fighting fantasy uh, formula is by having kind of no fights at all, Um, but I'm going to assume that there will be some fights sooner or later. The statues are all identical save one, a larger figure squatting at the back of the host. As you start to examine the figures, he straightens his legs very slowly and rises stiffly. He carries a large serrated sword and a tough wooden shield, and his frozen features are stern and daunting. You approach, and his upper body slowly leans forward in an exaggerated mockery of a bow. You wait for him to straighten, but he is frozen in his gesture. When you prod him, bow to him, or hurry out of the chamber, I'll give him a bow. Politeness costs nothing, except when a building is about to fall on your head. You return the white warrior's gesture, and courteously ask him his name. But there is no response. The figure remains motionless, poised in mid bow. Despite the growing pain in your temples, you are bathed in a feeling of security, an awareness that you have known and respected this man in the past. But he is lost to you now. Nausea rises up through your gorge and takes you by the ears. Do you know, I always hate it when uh, nausea takes me by the ears. I'm sure that's something that we can all. Empathize with the way that nausea always hits the ears first. It's a slightly strange turn of phrase. You hurry away from the warrior through the ranks of his army to the far end of the chamber. At the end of the chamber is a pair of huge doors which you heave open. Just beyond them is a huge red wax banner sealing the archway. A circular hole large enough for you to climb through has been burned through. The familiar pain nags at you once more. Behind you, there is a creaking, rustling sound. Do you want to turn to see what is making the noise or squeeze through the opening? I'm going to turn and see what is making the noise because I don't want to be stabbed in the bottom while I'm halfway through clambering through a circular hole. The falling dust begins to thicken until you can barely see an arm's length in front of you. The powdery mist swirls and billows as it gradually settles. The ranks of statues that once filled the chamber have been reduced to a chalky white powder through which the bones of an army of men protrude. The pressure builds once more, so we have no option but to climb through the wax seal. Beyond the wax seal you find yourself in darkness. The pain in your temples recedes and you pause briefly to catch your breath. Tentatively you edge forward, arms outstretched. Just as your eyes begin to accustom themselves, a brilliant flare of colour bursts from the blackness. It dies away, but in the fading light you can see that the rough floor is pockmarked. An acrid smell reaches your nostrils as the glow dissipates. Do you want to press on into the darkness or wait by the entrance? This feels like some form of deadly trap. I need more information, so I will wait by the entrance. You crouch just inside the opening, taking comfort from the dim radiance which seeps through it. But the pressure inside is mounting again. Ahead of you, another flare bursts on the chamber floor. You think you can discern an opening on the far side of the chamber, so you prepare to make a dash across the riddled floor. You bound out into the darkness, trying not to stumble on the rough, cratered floor. Roll one die and note down the result. I get a two. Hopefully that's good. It's not good. Add six to the number you rolled and note the result in the luck box of your adventure sheet. So we have a luck of eight. As you charge across the room, there is a fizzing sound from directly above. Test your luck. So, uh, first luck test of the adventure luck of eight. Get a three. I am lucky. Your foot snags in a crater and you tumble forward, grazing your elbows badly. But behind you, a dazzling flash of colour bursts from the place where you tripped. Relieved, you scramble the remaining distance to the safety of the far door arch. Very enjoyable to uh, generate your stouts as you go along. One of those things that I think probably makes most sense as a twist on the established formula. I think if this became the default, then you limit the kind of stories that you can tell. This is the kind of story where gradually discovering what your skills and capabilities are fits neatly with the framing device, but I think in many cases you want a character who you already know something about before you begin. Another red wax steel bars your progress, but once again it has been breached. As you squeeze through, the pressure in your head eases and you notice the air has lost its musty tang. Ahead of you is a small, rough-hewn chamber, dominated by an imposing flight of stairs, which ascends steeply into darkness. The chamber is illuminated feebly by two blue-flamed torches, which also give off a delicate scent. The stairs give you hope of escaping this eerie realm, and you make for them with renewed vigour. You are no more than halfway up when a voice behind you stops you dead. Wait! It grates with a dry, rattling timbre. The voice is familiar and you are gripped by the same foreboding you felt when you awoke. Do you want to ignore the command or would you rather wait? I will wait, I think, on this occasion. Again, I always want to know what's going on and what's happening. I always want to investigate. I always want to prod pry and rummage, uh, but this seems like an even more important thing to be doing in uh, an amnesia set-up. You look down into the chamber below, watching as the blue torch flames snake outwards and combine into a glowing sphere. The voice comes again, tinged with sadness. Too soon, too soon. For the sake of the isles, remember all that I have taught you. As he speaks, you feel the stairs quiver beneath your feet. The pressure grows and your feet slip on the crumbling stone. The stairs are quickly reduced to a rubble-strewn slope, and you scrabble frantically for purchase. Roll two dice and note down the result. Could this be some stamina we're about to generate? There is a picture of the chamber. It's one of those images that You feel like the artist selected because he knew it would be quick and easy to turn out. Um, Yeah, there's a chamber. There's a hole in the wall. There's a swirly thing with some faces just about visible in it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't really add anything either. Okay, so I roll two dice, getting a six and a two. That makes eight. And there we go. Add 12 to the number you rolled and write the result in the stamina box of your adventure sheet stamina of 20. Now roll four dice and compare the result to your stamina. So less than 20 on four dice. That should be fairly straightforward. Yep. Yep. Three twos and a four gets me a total of 10. At the top of the stairs, you are confronted by yet another seal. You scramble through the opening and find yourself in a low ceilinged corridor, which snakes off ahead of you. On the floor beside you, neatly laid out, are a great sword and a haversack. Do you want to take these? You can. The haversack contains fresh food equivalent to five provisions. So nice to see a great sword um, instead of the traditional long sword or short sword. It's always kind of cool, even if it doesn't have any in-game effect. When you get given a weapon that's uh, a little bit different, and a great sword is a little bit different. Obviously, I'm delighted to have my provisions back, and five provisions feels like the right number. You continue along the passage, passing through another three seals. You notice that the pressure builds as you advance, then drops again when you pass through each seal. The corridors tremble spasmodically the further you progress, and by the time you approach the seventh seal, loose pebbles are raining down upon you. Breaking into a run, you make a dash for the sunlight which streams through the seal ahead of you. Roll one die and note down the result. So this will be our skill. One. Oh well. Add four to the number you rolled and write down the result in the skill box of your adventure sheet. So uh, we have a skill of five. That is very low. Roll two dice against your skill. So I roll a six and a four, either of which would have been much more useful when I was generating my skill. So that gives me a total of 10, which is more than my skill of five. It's double my skill of five, in fact. Kind of cool that you don't get a skill that goes all the way up to 12. Yeah, I think uh, reducing the range of possible skills is a good thing, Uh, makes it easier to balance. And if you've got a scale that goes up as high as 12, not allowing people to get to the very top of that is potentially a good idea. Anyway, I've failed my skill roll. As you squeeze through the opening into the warm sunlight, a shaft of pain shoots up your right leg as a chunk of rock glances off it. Deduct one point from your stamina. Stamina now 19 Grabbing the lip of the entrance steps, you drag yourself painfully through the mouth out of the underworld. You collapse into a heap as a gout of dust is forced from the hole. There is a distant roar of collapsing masonry. Then the hanging cloud of dust is sucked violently back into the depths, tugging at your clothes as it retreats. You have escaped. Hooray! You bask in the comforting rays of the midday sun. A light wind brings the welcome tang of sea salt to your nostrils. After a while, your eyes adjust to the brilliant light, and you gaze in wonderment at your surroundings. Around you is a scene of spectacular devastation. The remnants of a magnificent city stand charred and distorted. Massive archways are riddled with clusters of tiny holes as if consumed by ravening worms towers are contorted the stone melted and warped houses are stained and spattered by a myriad colors their walls jagged and jumbled mighty gashes scar the earth filled with bubbling quagmires which give off noxious fumes the air itself seems charged with magical powers you are alone You are in a large open square, surrounded by the bizarre wreckage of some diabolical battle. To your right, facing into the sea breeze, you can see battered city ramparts and the arms of mighty catapults. To your left, you can make out the imposing arch of the city gates. So we can either head for the gates, investigate the sea wall, or search among the ruined streets. I think we'll start off by searching among the ruined streets. The ground between the buildings is scored by long, deep ruts. You trace these marks to some of the most violently disfigured houses. The walls around here have a metallic sheen and the smell of sulphur in the air increases. You soon discover the source of the ruts when you come upon a marrow-shaped object as thick as your wrist. Its husk is intricately woven from wicker and it lies at the end of a deep gash resting at the foot of an undamaged wall. Looks like some kind of munitions to me. Don't think I want to peer too closely at that, so I will ignore it, and I will continue searching among the buildings. You are close to the seaward-facing part of the city when you catch sight of a sudden spout of water among the ruins. As you make your way over to it, it spurts again, showering you with salty spray. The source of the geezer is man-made, a circular, stone-clad hole at the bottom of which you can hear the echoing roar of the sea. At the side of the manhole lies a metal grating to which a tightly woven rope is tied. Wet clothing is strewn about the place. You deduce that the water spouts at regular intervals as rogue waves pound into a sea cave below and force their way up. You peer into the thundering depth. Rats, rats, always the last to leave a sinking ship. The voice is behind you. You turn. A magnificent horse rears up, a multicoloured rider looking down at you from its back. But there's plenty of room here to play. Why leave? It whines in shifting tones. There really are some very odd tones of phrase in this book. But the rider remains silent for the words come from the mouth of the beast. With a parting swish of its silvery tail, it canters away. Hmm, most peculiar. Do I want to chase after it? Climb down the shaft using the rope for security or make for the sea walls? I I don't feel as though this multicoloured rider on a talking horse means me either good or ill. So I'm going to ignore it and I'm going to climb down the shaft and see whether there's anything at the bottom. Uh two things at the bottom of shafts, monsters and treasure. Waiting for a spout to subside, you tie the rope round you, secure the other end and lower yourself down the shaft. Descending to the roiling sea below, you begin to tread water. The cave ceiling is barely an arm's length above you, and at the far end of the cave you can make out the open sea, upon which a small boat is bobbing in and out of view. You strike out for the entrance carried up and down by the swirling tide. Now you can see an anxious face peering over the boat's side. She waves frantically and you hear a shout but cannot make it out over the din of the sea cave. Do you want to swim out to the boat or climb back up the chute? I think we will swim over to the boat. Finding it enormously difficult to get a handle on this one. No, go back. The waters are too high. The anguished shout reaches you as you flail about. The boat is carried out of sight by a huge wave which surges into the chamber. It sweeps you up to the ceiling and you dash your head against the rock. You choke on a mouthful of seawater and go under. The chamber is completely submerged. There is no escape. Okay, so a bit early to call a halt there, so I'm going to invoke the sausagey fingered bookmark rule and we will return to the previous section where instead of swimming out we will climb back up the chute so always kind of cool when I die in one of these books uh before I've even had my first fight uh but yeah this seems a fairly arbitrary death if I'm honest but at the same time I think there were some warning signs uh in the text to suggest that maybe going for a swim in the cave that's being pounded by sea tides maybe wasn't the the brightest idea I've ever had. So no real complaints about it. Realising the danger you are in you kick back towards the rope. Before you can reach it you are borne up by a swell of water. It dashes you forward and up the chute. You are tossed up through the manhole amid a spout of water, landing wet, battered and bedraggled, but safe. Lose one point from your stamina. Stamina now eighteen. You hurry through the city streets and along a series of narrow alleyways, while ahead of you hoofbeats rattle against stone. At a crossroads you catch up with the horse and its multicoloured rider. The two are welded together by some bizarre sorcery. The horse's mouth opens and a piping voice splutters at you. "'Rat trapped in a maze, and how is it going to get out?' The rider stares at you, his eyes blank. "'It needs a friend, it does, someone to carry it from the city, someone who knows.' "'Do you want to attempt to befriend the mutant rider?' Uh yeah, sure, why not? I'm not one to judge. Uh you do you, weird mutant rider-horse hybrid.' The creature continues to splutter in its piping voice and you can't make up your mind whether to look into the blank eyes of its rider or those of the horse which are covered with a silvery sheen. Its talk means very little to you. Rats, meadows and bright lights seem to be all it cares for. As it speaks though, you experience a faint trace of memory. You have an uneasy feeling about this mutant. It reminds you of something unpleasant. Hmm. So we can now take it up on its offer to transport you from the city, approach cautiously to try and find out more about it, or attack it and take it by surprise. These little shards of memory that are kind of cropping up once in a while are very intriguing. I'm gonna approach it cautiously. While the creature babbles, you edge towards it and stretch out your hands. As soon as they touch its flesh, a tingle runs through your fingers. You realize that you can sense the magic which caused this creature's state. And more, you can understand that magic. You have acquired the power of mutation and should write it down on your adventure sheet, together with the code word Biantai. Whenever this code word is given as an option, you will know that you can use your power of mutation. You are concentrating so hard on your new knowledge that you hardly notice the mutant creature shy away in fright and gallop off. Now you are left with little choice but to head towards the sea. This is a very strange book. Still, we're making progress. The mighty catapults raise their arms towards the heavens, giving you an idea. Perhaps you can escape this blighted city using them. The sea will break your fall, and you should be able to swim along the coast until you find a safe place to beach. This is an amazingly amazingly stupid plan. Climbing onto a nearby platform, you heave a large tar-smeared missile into the waiting basket. You then tug out the wooden pin which frees the catapult bar and watch as the missile soars up and over the city walls. You haven't the strength to winch the arm back, but there is another prime catapult a short distance away. It is the work of a moment to tie a string to the wooden pin and then clamber into the basket. Offering up a silent prayer to any deities who happen to be listening, you give the string a sharp tug. Test your luck. So, this is a genuinely demented plan. I don't know how quickly we're going to be hitting the sea. If you hit water at speed, it is not soft, it's pretty hard. Um, There are records of people injuring themselves really badly jumping off high platforms of one sort or another into um water uh, you really need to know what you're doing you need to be prepared for it and that's moving only at the speed of a body naturally falling we are planning to add some speed at the outset by launching ourselves out of a catapult um, this is an incredibly stupid and dangerous plan. But let's find out how it pans out. I've got a luck of seven at the moment, so let's roll. Five. That is lucky. Luck now down to six. The wind is a wall, and you have just been flung into it. You see a whirl of blue, white and brown, and then you are dropping, spinning in the air. Below you A tiny boat bobs up and down on the water. The water rushes up to meet you. You suck in as much air as your lungs can hold and hope you know how to swim. You fall into the sea feet first and the shock stuns you. I'm amazed it didn't break my legs. You see a dimly lit realm of green, blue and silver, then your arms start to work, pulling you up. You break the surface and draw in a deep gulp of air exhilarated, so there's a picture which I think kind of shows us being in mid flight of the ruined city with the water um in the distance um it's at a kind of Dutch angle. yeah, it's pretty cool, it's pretty cool, although again, I feel as though this is a less good option for a picture than for example, the incredibly weird sounding melded horse and rider. Yeah, there's some slightly strange choices about what to actually depict in this. Still, we've made it alive and that's to be celebrated. Minutes later, a dark wooden hull looms up above you. Strong arms reach down and pull you from the water up into a small boat. Your rescuer is a woman, dressed practically in leather and with a sailor's long knife at her belt. As you look her over, she stares at you, her brows furrowing. Who in all the isles are you? She cries. And what has happened to Thandile? So, um, nice to see the woman who we saw in our ill-fated exploration of the Undersea Cave uh, pop up again. Always like that. When things that you've seen before turn out to have, you know, object permanence and what have you. So, Thandile, have no idea who that is. Um, I could either... Tell her I've never heard of Thandile, or tell her about the dead man I found. Uh, yeah, we'll tell her about the dead man. Let's work on the basis that that was Thandile. You cast your mind back to the first hours of consciousness. Her hard features soften as you describe the body that lay in your tomb chamber. It is obvious that you guessed correctly. She turns to look back at the city, her eyes moist. You say nothing, respecting her moment of private grief moment passes. And then another. Finally, she sighs and turns back to you. What are you gawping at? She spits. Get back to work on the sails and thank the gods that I bothered to save you. Despite your lack of sea craft, you soon pick up the most important skill, avoiding the boom as it swings back and forth in the wind. Soon the sails are trimmed and ready to catch the faint sea breezes. You make little progress, however. A dense, clinging mist settles about the boat, limiting your vision to a few metres. The wind finally drops altogether, and Vel'Kos takes the opportunity to catch up on some sleep. So, uh, that's her name. Didn't actually introduce it in the text, but fair enough. We can assume that we made some introductions. You remain awake as lookout. After a while, you hear muffled sounds ahead a slight splashing like the gentle slap of cloth against water. Moments later, a large shape approaches out of the mist. It looks like a huge translucent ball with a dark shape squirming within it. Do you have a sword and would you like to use it against the sphere? Otherwise, the only weapon available to you is a rough wooden pole. I do have a sword, I have a great sword, so we will use that the ball bumps into the side of the ship and another rolls up behind it. You leap across, slashing wildly at the ball and you feel your blade cutting into a pliant membrane. There is a gust of fetid air and the ball deflates. From it leaps a form of whirling madness. Uh, this is a maddened criminal. And there is a picture of the deflating ball with the maddened criminal clambering on board the ship. There's another ball in the background and the woman Velkos lying asleep usefully asleep on the deck the maddened criminal has a skill of seven and a stamina of five i have a skill of five Uh, so for the first time this adventure i'm gonna roll some dice I have been defeated by the Madden Criminal. I reduced the Madden Criminal to three points of health. I did try and use my luck to influence the outcome of the fight. uh, Successfully testing my luck to reduce uh, the damage to one. Keeping me alive for another round. But quite aside from the fact that it's got more skill than me. The Madden Criminal also just rolled abysmally well. Continually. I was just hoping for another opportunity to... um, hit and then I would try and test my luck again but it never came and I was just hacked to death on the boat. I think that's the point at which we're going to have to call a halt to this recording. I'm going to go away and play through on my own time. I really don't feel I've got any kind of handle on this one at all so I'm very intrigued to find out how I feel about it once I've had a few different goes at it. Uh, I'll definitely be cheating on my skill score, I think, to uh, make survival a bit more likely. But uh, yes, I'll be back in just a few seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! This is a tough review to write because I don't think I've been left feeling so conflicted by Gamebook for some considerable time. I have felt irritated and exhilarated by Blackvane Prophecy in equal parts, sometimes in the same paragraph. There's a plethora of good ideas that this book does its best to undercut through some baffling decision making and a deeply disjointed tone. It's the epitome. Of the curate's egg in the modern sense of the expression, parts of it are very good indeed. Firstly, I'm not sure I've ever died in the first fight before. I could be wrong, after this many episodes, things have a way of becoming muddled together in my head. I think it's the case that I haven't died to a monster with a skill quite this low, quite this early. Uh, And that's almost certainly going to stick in my mind because of that, and That's no bad thing. One of the things I like about this book is that it's very low combat in general. Taking 40 minutes to get to the first smackdown is all but unprecedented. There's relatively few tough fights and I think all of them can be avoided with the right choices and the few other fights are usually with unskilled opponents. Now I like a good fighting fantasy combat. I think you can use monsters and villains to do some really fun world building as well as it being a key part of the game side of adventure game books. However, all too often, it becomes a crutch to rely on for authors when they can't think of anything better to do and need to pad the section count. And that's not the case here. There's been a real effort to try and minimise combat wherever possible. This subversion of expectations with combat reveals a design approach that is clearly in dialogue with the shibboleths of the series as a whole that have grown. Over the last 41 books. There's a clear desire to experiment from the outset, and to do so both in terms of the narrative, the rules, and the structure. Some of it succeeds very well, but quite a lot of it falls a little flat. We've had amnesiac protagonists and fish out of water protagonists before, but one thing that Black Vein Prophecy does is shift the character generation into the text in order to give you a sense of discovering your capabilities as they become relevant. That's only possible with a mature medium in which certain elements have become ossified to a degree. This is a great idea and the twist of having your skill be generated with a 4 rather than a 6 is a fantastic touch. It throws in a surprise and subtly hints that your character is a spellcaster rather than a fighter. That's something from the advanced fighting fantasy rule set, and it's great to see elements from outside of the core rules make an appearance in a way that's consistent with how the rules are written elsewhere. You will also be discovering your spell powers as you go along, and I think this is also cool. Finding a new power always feels rewarding. However, there's a caveat that finding the spell powers often feels a bit peculiar. What they're clearly going for is the idea that certain things trigger memories in your character. On the face of it, this is a good thing. Constantly having your character trip over spellbooks and scrolls would start to feel contrived quite quickly. And pushing you to explore the world is always appreciated. But trying to decide whether to run away from a monster or lick it to see if a flavour brings back a memory inevitably feels very random. If you present players with a weird world full of strange occurrences, it makes it very hard to decode what might be the most sensible course of action. It's what I call a brass moustache moment after a scene in British satirical current affairs show Brass Eye, where a prison guard berates his charges for not polishing the enormous brass moustache that he has hidden behind a notice board. It's become a mental shorthand for me when I think about any situation Which demands obtuse behaviour that isn't directly suggested by the environment. Black vein prophecy is full of brass moustache moments where I just don't feel as though the text has given me enough information to make an informed choice. And the weirder the situation and the overall tone, the harder that decision making becomes. One of the subtle pieces of genius in Lewis Carroll's Alice books is that the world may be utterly bizarre. But Alice herself tends to respond to it by doing her best to behave rationally. She's generally trying to be sensible in a nonsense world, which gives the reader a stable position from which to enjoy the silliness that inevitably results. If she had been as surreal as the situations in which she found herself, the books wouldn't have resonated to the same degree. So I think when you create a world that's filled with bizarre spectacles, such as the mutated horse and rider we meet early on, it's quite important to give the player ways of relating to those spectacles that make sense from their perspective. And that's something that Black Vein Prophecy just doesn't do well enough, at least in part because the framing device of amnesia and confusion doesn't give you a premise for your character, which can be then used as a guide for how you interact with the world. It's that Alice element again. Alice generally responds like a well-brought-up girl of a certain class which provides her with a clear set of rules with which to approach novel situations. In a game book it is often your mission which provides this mental scaffolding. If you look at something like Midnight Rogue, the fact that you're a thief in training gives you a framework with which to approach the challenges. When in doubt you will gravitate towards decisions that reinforce that framework, sneaking about, breaking into houses, and so forth. Books with a time mechanic give you the opportunity to weigh up whether taking a course of action will be too costly in terms of the time it might cost you. You can do something similar with an amnesiac character. They have an intrinsic motivation to find out who they are and what their place in the world is, but that means you have to construct a world which responds to that intrinsic motivation. You can of course also provide extrinsic motivations. Both Black Vein Prophecy and Creature of Havoc open in dangerous confined spaces where escape becomes the primary motivation. The key difference is that Creature of Havoc provides a whole bunch of background for you to use as clues to guide your behaviour once the dungeon is complete. Black Vein Prophecy, by virtue of its strangeness, never really manages to give you the sense that your choices are anything other than random until you meet a key NPC. Who gives you some vital insight and then sends you off on a specific mission and it makes the central part of the story feel very aimless because it never feels as though you are making choices which will serve your intrinsic motivation. The book really picks up for me once you've actually got a clear mission to go on. It's a pity because there are some nice set pieces in that middle portion of the book but I just never felt like they mattered because I didn't have a handle on why I might be doing anything. There's some fun business with a band of robbers that I think I would have enjoyed enormously if I felt like I had some skin in the game. If it felt like joining robbers served my purposes, or even if it didn't and I had a strong motivation to try and escape, that could have been an amazing time. But in practice, I had no emotional investment. Maybe my character was a robber all along, or maybe they were someone who would be scandalised by taking up with a band of cutthroats. I just couldn't tell, and that made it feel as though this was just some stuff that was happening. So there's a lesson there. Even a fun set of encounters can wind up feeling pointless if there's no stakes. It doesn't help that there's a curious lack of scale in the early part of the book, which then suddenly flips when it becomes a narrative about the fate of a nation it kind of has a two act structure maybe three but the sudden change from bumbling around and getting into scrapes and then being told oh yeah you really need to find an army and do a big coup now in order to save the kingdom that feels very jarring it's another thing that wouldn't have been a problem if it was written properly that very contrast between bumbling around the countryside and determining the fate of the world could have been very effective if it had been drawn attention to and is not helped by the flat emotional register which permeates a lot of this book. It makes it feel more like an adventure module than a story if that makes sense and I think you can absolutely do game books along those lines. The Valley of Bones is a great example of doing precisely that but that book also handled the escalation of stakes considerably better. I think game books are at their best when they feel both like adventure modules and like stories. It's a tricky thing to get right, but I think that is the middle ground that you're aiming for. Game books are a hybrid form of literature, and what you're trying to do is bridge the gap between those two very different experiences in a way that's entertaining. This is a book with two different authors and I think that shows. The choppy tone and the juxtaposition of wildly different plot elements makes it hard to feel truly engaged while reading it. Some of the sections don't even flow into each other as well as they should. There's often a jarring sense of dislocation as you move between areas, as though you've missed a paragraph of context explaining precisely why you've ended up where you did, and I don't think you see that as much in single author books. It's worth noting that Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone found something similar in the writing of Warlock of Firetop Mountain, and that fed into their decision to write books alone in future. There are plenty of examples of writing teams who work well together, Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson spring to mind and I think it's worth noting that Slaves of the Abyss also by Paul Mason and Steve Williams is a lot more coherent in terms of its plotting though it is still quite a strange book. While I was doing the research on this book to see how other people had found it I actually came across a comment from one of the authors on a review posted at Malthus Dyer's Fighting Fantasy blog by Mark Lane. Malthus Dyer is a fantastic sight and Mark's review, while perfectly fair, is a bit harsher than my own feelings towards the book. But what I did spot was that one of the comments was from Paul Mason himself, which I found really interesting. He pulls back the curtain a little bit and reveals that while he needed the work himself, his co author Steve Williams had got a decent job in the advertising industry and regarded the project as more of a bit of fun than a serious commercial undertaking paul mason was trying to write an exploration of another culture while steve williams was mostly just trying to amuse and that explains a few things in particular the bizarrely mixed tone and the fact that some elements seem to be drawing on far eastern trope and some elements just really don't it's a tricky thing to pull off writing a game book together at the best of times and when two authors are pulling in different directions it becomes exponentially harder. Uh, Mason also notes that they very much wrote Slaves of the Abyss together. They were in the same room working at the same computer and with Black Vein Prophecy that didn't happen because of their conflicting schedules. They were writing different sections independently. It's a rare look into the writing of a fighting fantasy book, and it's one that I found really interesting. He was also enormously gracious about the negative review, which I think everyone should be. On the upside, I think that there's still quite a lot of things in this book that work well. Once you get onto the final stretch and the world becomes more fleshed out, I found myself much more invested in the text. There's some quite deep encounter design as well. There's plenty of set pieces that can play out in lots of different ways depending on the choices you make and that's something I enormously appreciate. I would rather have a smaller number of dense encounters than a large number of superficial ones. You get to travel to some cool locations and have a reasonably fun time despite the problems and there's lots of little things that you do early on Which pay off later, which is another thing I'm a big fan of. I think the robber group you encounter, who you can join up with or run away from and have a sort of little mini adventure with, is a highlight, but there's also a village with some fun moments, not least a trip to the village baths, which is a strange little set piece, but one I did enjoy. There's also a chance to tangle with some slavers, which I also quite liked. The city which has been magically destroyed in which you emerge from your tomb is also nice on paper, although I would say it is criminally underwritten. However, the finale I just straight up enjoyed. Gathering an army to oppose your corrupt twin brother feels like a proper adventure, and the final battle with your spell chucking sibling is a great example of how to write climactic confrontations without just relying on a high skill monster. It really feels like a wizard duel and you get a chance to use all of the spells that you've collected through the adventure. I think it might have benefited from a few more pointers as to which spell to use against which attack. Once you've actually made it to the end of the book with the full list of magic spells, which is no mean feat, I think you should be able to relax a bit and give the hero their power fantasy moment It's still good, but I think it would have been better if it felt more like a, oh, I have become this amazing badass. Following that, there's a flashback sequence which fills in the backstory from the beginning, which I very much enjoyed. It's great to see all of the strangeness of the opening being revealed and paid off and given a sense of meaning. It's a nice time. However, there is one decision that hangs over this book like a bad smell. In order to beat this book, you really need to be slightly mutated. And the way you obtain the slight mutation is to be hit by the magical spell in the chamber at the beginning in which you generate your luck score. To finish this book, you need to fail a luck test, specifically the very first luck test you ever make. Pass that luck test as I did on my recorded playthrough and you're screwed and you have no idea you're screwed and you will really struggle to work out why you are screwed it's a terrible design on almost every level not least because if you're going to require a failed luck test putting that as the first test when your luck is going to be at its absolute maximum is insane your reward for rolling a 6 when you roll for your luck is that you literally can't finish the book it's not often I feel like laying down specific laws on game design, but I'm going to do that now. Don't gate progress behind failed tests. Just don't. Gating progress behind past tests isn't great, and this is a book which is also very happy to kill you if you fail a luck test later on, but at least gating progress behind a past test makes intuitive sense. And you can write it in such a way as to make it obvious. It does raise the stakes. I don't think it's the best way of raising the stakes, but it does raise the stakes. I don't like it as a design, but I can accept it. Gating progress behind a failed test makes zero intuitive sense, and it's very hard to write your book in such a way that there's any hint whatsoever that something good would have happened had you failed a role that the entire system is telling you you want to pass. Especially with luck tests, that violates the whole premise of the system. The idea is you're testing whether you're lucky or unlucky. If you're unlucky, something bad happens. If the bad thing needs to happen, you're unlucky if you pass the test. It doesn't make sense. There is a faint argument that it might be okay if you've deliberately engineered your book so that the character is very unlucky. You've made many terrible things happen to them constantly, and that's a feature of the narrative, only for it to turn out to be okay in the end, because actually all of those terrible things were building towards one good outcome. That's incredibly difficult to pull off, and I also suspect that it still wouldn't be fun, because having a bunch of terrible things happen to your character in exchange for a gotcha moment later still means that the player has to suffer through all of those terrible things, and that's rarely fun at all. So don't invert your systems. Just don't. They are the closest thing to physical laws of the universe you have in the world that you create. They should be treated like gravity, and it's even more unforgivable in a book that loves luck tests as much as this. While I'm laying into it, it's also worth noting that it hasn't been playtested or proofread properly, which is very poor. It's not just the fault of the authors, it's also the fault of the copy editor. One broken section link is forgivable, but um there are five in this according to the wiki page on the Fighting Fantasy wiki, and that really is a bit much. It's also not very consistent about how it refers to objects. So a jar of orange syrup is later just referred to as a small jar. And it's just not always clear that the item that it's referring to is the same item that you picked up. And as a rule of thumb, I say in a game book, you should always refer to an item that is required for interaction with exactly the same terminology every single time. It just prevents confusion. All of this just reduces my confidence in the book when I'm playing it, and confidence is an underrated feature of game books. There's an unspoken contract with the player about cause and effect, and the less well those elements apply, the less confidence you will have in the book. In a well-designed book, I'm excited by every decision on the basis that I trust the author to do something interesting with the options. In a badly designed book, I find decisions increasingly stressful because I have no confidence that the options will lead to anything interesting. I start to feel that there's no role for me in actually determining the outcome of events. I might as well just toss a coin. Game books are a confidence trick. They need to make you believe that you are in control of the narrative, even though The medium makes that impossible. You are only ever selecting from a finite set of options that have been predetermined. As soon as you start to feel that you might as well be choosing options by eeny, meeny, miny, moe, that confidence drains away and you just become aware that you're a puppet dancing to the tune of the organ grinder. There's another smaller issue with how the items you acquire relate to the challenges you face. There's an art to making items fit with the problems they solve, and I don't think most people faced with a mob of angry eels would be immediately thinking that blowing on a whistle would be the ideal way of dealing with them, but that's what happens here. When the book asks you if you want to fight, run away, or do something completely bizarre, that is another thing that breaks the immersion and makes that confidence trick fail. No one in a role-playing game on seeing a dragon thinks, oh thank goodness I brought that didgeridoo and the child's rattle with me. I'm sure one of those will be helpful with this fire-breathing menace. I mean it is difficult because you do want some items whose use is not immediately obvious. You do still need to write those encounters in such a way as to indicate that trying to use this item of indeterminate purpose might be the sort of thing that comes to mind in that situation. Another interesting feature of the book is the fact that the aesthetic is all over the place. Now this is I think a consequence of the problems with the way in which the book was written but I don't think it is actually something that's necessarily a problem. A crazy mashup of disparate cultural influences is hardly an issue in a fantasy world but it does add to the ongoing surreal atmosphere. I think we tend to like things that have a unified aesthetic more but I believe that's as much due to habit as anything else. You can compare this with Sword of the Samurai or Daggers of Darkness, which have quite a strong real world influence, and those feel quite satisfying. But at the same time, I like seeing something that pulls from a few different cultural sources, like the space cowboys meets uh, Chinese imperialism vibe of the TV show Firefly. Now here, that conflict is something which arose from the contrasting styles of the writers, but this is absolutely not a book designed to take advantage of that conflict in an interesting way, so it ends up being more of a hindrance than a unique or quirky feature. Overall, I will say that I found myself warming a little bit more towards Black Vein Prophecy the more I played it. It is a messy book with some significant issues, but there's also some good ideas in there. And putting some of the very best ones at the end at least leads to what I thought was a satisfying conclusion, which is nice. There's a lot of experimentation on display as well. Some of it works, but sadly, most of it really doesn't. Still, an interesting failure is a lot easier for me to take than a bland failure, so that counts for quite a lot. It's worth a look. It's another one that is particularly pricey if you want to get a second hand copy. Um, but PDFs are available, and it's not as though you're taking money out of anyone's pocket on this one. That's all for this episode. Join me again in a couple of weeks for another bonus episode, and don't forget I have a Patreon if you want to support me with your precious precious cash, and you can always leave a nice review if you don't want to give me money, but would still like to help me out. You can follow me on bluesky at hjdoom, or email me at hjdoomretrofun.com, or one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.